Welcome to podcast number 35 for Thanks for Your Service. Thanks for Your Service is a news information resource and its focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. During World War II and in contravention of the Geneva Protocol, mustard gas was stored across 14 secret sites in Australia. In today's podcast, we learn about the mustard gas men. Joining us on the line from the mid-north coast of New South Wales and author of Mid-Coast Stories, Janine Roberts. Janine, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, David. Now, the mustard gas men, who were they? Well, I guess to understand who the mustard gas men were, we need to go back to World War One and have a little bit of context. So... Um, Mustard gas was used in World War One, as I'm sure many of your listeners would know, with devastating effects. Uh, mustard gas causes blisters, burns, it burns the eyes, it affects the respiratory tract, the digestive tract, and we now know it's a, a carcinogen. So there's a lot of long-term effects from mustard gas. And even when World War II started, uh, a lot of people would have known about their fathers or grandfathers who'd been affected in World War I from mustard gas. So after World War I and, and these terrible effects, I think there were about 90,000 people killed on, on both sides during World War I just from mustard gas and hundreds of thousands more injuries. So in 1925 in Geneva, a Geneva Protocol was drawn up which banned the use of chemical and biological weapons in warfare. And Australia was one of the early signatories to this, as was the UK. But there were a couple of countries who, who didn't take part in the protocol, and Japan was one of them, and the US was one of them. In the 1930s, Japan invaded China, which went through to World War II, and there was more and more evidence coming out that Japanese troops were using mustard gas um, on Chinese civilians and military personnel. And there were lots of reports in the newspapers and even an island um, was found later on after the war that was off the island of, of, sorry, an island of Japan that was actually creating mustard gas. So the threat of Japan coming to Australia then was really high, especially in, in February 1942 when we had the fall of Singapore. And that is when Australia and its allies, the UK and the US, decided to secretly import a million chemical weapons into Australia. And this obviously went against the Geneva Protocol, um, but they felt that they needed to have it in case we needed to use it against the Japanese, our enemies at the time. So a specialist chemical war warfare unit was created and it was created using RAF personnel, and they were the chemical warfare armourers. And um, I'll talk about this a bit later, but they were pressed into the work of handling, transporting, and later disposing of the mustard gas. And in later years, they became known as the mustard gas men. We can get on to, to your article in a moment, but let's go back mm -hmm. in terms of the history that you just... Mm -hmm. And obviously, Australia, as you indicated, was a, a signatory to the Geneva Protocol. So is it our understanding that the Allies imported mustard gas to Australia in contravention of the Geneva Protocol? Yes, yes. They, they knew it was contravening the protocol, um, but it was seen as the greater of, you know, two evils was to <laughs> have be prepared and it, 
I guess, you know, we're talking about here the armourers and the people who looked after the mustard gas, but then there's a whole other side to this story of the people who were trialled in mustard gas trials in Australia. So it really was um, a, a big a big contravention of the yeah. protocol. Now, in terms of the article you wrote, I mean, I think you, you host and produce a website called Midco Stories and you wrote this article titled The Mustard That's Gas right. Men and you focused on mm. one um, RAAF, the Royal Australian Air Force Airman Ross yes. Ashley Bryan in particular. Mm-hmm. Why him? Um, so in the mid-coast area, so I write stories for the mid-coast area of um, New South Wales and that's a local government area that covers from Crowdy Head, Harrington, down to Taree, all the way down to Tea Gardens, Hawks Nest and across to Gloucester. And a local family history society, the Manning Willamba Family History Society, was sent a photograph from Neil McGlashan of the Glenbrook Historical Society, which is in the Blue Mountains. And this photograph had um, carved on it a, a date, so it was August 1943, leading aircraftman R.A. Bryan, Taree, New South Wales. And because Taree falls in my region, the um, Family History Society asked if I would be interested in researching what this carving was all about. So uh, that's why I started researching Ross Bryan. So the the actual tunnel, the Glenbrook Railway Tunnel, mm. um, yeah. is at Lapstone Hills, yeah. which is in the Blue Mountains area, which is you know obviously further from from the uh, the mid coast, the mid north yes. coast. <laughs> but um, but Bryan himself was from your region. Yes, yes. So I didn't know any of the story. I had no, I had no concept that mustard gas was kept in Australia during World War Two. I had no idea. Um, and so I was asked to just research who was this guy? Why did he carve on a rock? Why did he put tari? And what I started to find out um, really shocked me. And um, yeah, would you like me to yeah, tell you a let, bit about that? Let, 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 let's talk about, if we can talk about Brian first, and then we can talk mm. about sort of the, the broader issues of mustard gas and, and, mm. uh, and the Glenbrook Tunnel. But um, who was Brian? So Brian um, was a young man who was living in Taree. He was born in 1924. And he actually, before he signed up in 1943, he was working as a saw sharpener in his father's sawmill up near Lansdowne. And um, he also had a bit, bit of an interest in motor cars as well. So he was he was just a young man when he signed up, 19. And... You know, I keep thinking when you sign up to the RAF, you must have ideas or thoughts of wanting to be a pilot, doing something quite, you know, more glamorous than what he ended up doing. Um, so Ross ended up joining the RAF and he underwent training as an armourer at Glenbrook RAF base, which is obviously right near the tunnel. And he passed his course and as a result, he was actually um, sent to Glenbrook Tunnel to work as, a, as an armourer, not really knowing what that job was going to be. So it ended up being that he was going to be looking after the mustard gas stores that were secretly in the Glenbrook Tunnel and 13 other places around Australia, by the way. Mm. So uh, now if we can focus now on the, must, the use of mustard yeah. gas in Australia and Glenbrook Tunnel, what can you <clears throat> tell us about that? Um, 
Okay, so firstly, uh, Glenbrook Tunnel, as I said, was one of 14 places in Australia chosen. Um, there were three other tunnels that were used nearby and they were all disused railway tunnels. So they included Marangaroo, Glenbrook, of course, Picton and Clarence. And tunnels offer great advantages for, for storing mustard gas. It's low temperatures, there's a constant humidity there, it's easy to guard the stores and it's hidden from aerial view. And actually, I don't know if your listeners will know this, but outside Marangaroo Tunnel, there was actually a fake town that was put there so that if Japanese planes flew over, what they would see would be like an old pub and a butcher's that actually hid the people who were the workers there. Um, so the tunnels were used to store mustard gas. On a day-to-day -day basis, it would have been a really, really boring job. So the men would have to move all of the gas canisters out of the tunnel, check each one for leaks, um, release the bung on it because the, the pressure built up inside and they had to depressurize the barrels. And then they had to paint on... Um, I guess a paint that would tell you whether mustard gas was leaking or not. And that was the extent of the job on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh, the thing that I, I found quite shocking was that men had heard about mustard gas and they heard about the effects, but it didn't register, that, register to them that what they were doing was actually really dangerous work. They... Um, you know, talked later when they were able to about how ill-trained they were, how ill-informed Ill of the risks they were. And, um, yeah, but at the same time, they also felt they didn't have a choice. They were told to do this. Part of their duty. And is, is it mm. right to say in terms of their daily handling of yeah. the mustard gas that they did it without protective equipment? So they were given protective equipment and the um, stories vary. Um I haven't heard once where the protective equipment was adequate. There was always ripped clothes or, um, you know, insufficient gas masks and, and gloves. But the, at the same time, it was really hot working with, with in the tunnels there. And so the men actually didn't put on the proper protective um, equipment. So they were constantly exposed to the gases. And I, another thing I should say about mustard gas is it's not just where it it makes contact on your skin or if you breathe it in. It's actually, if it gets onto your clothes, it penetrates your clothes, it sits in the ground and it's, it's quite insidious in that way. Do we know what happened with the chemical weapons after the war? Obviously the Allies, the Australians, the Americans, yeah. the Brits, we, we never, uh, well, it was never used in World War II, but I mean, you had these stockpiles around Australia. What happened to it? Um, so I, I would say, firstly, though, it was used. It just wasn't used in, um, I guess, enemy warfare, but it was actively used on um, in trials in northern Queensland and also um, in other areas of Australia, including Mini Waters, which is near Grafton. Um, so human trials actually happened to see what the effect of mustard gas was in the tropics because they found that the mustard gas had a different effect in you know, the fields of France, um, but it was far more potent, four times more potent in the tropics. And so there was actually human trials that were going on where mustard gas was used. 
to answer your question with what happened, um, there were two ways of destroying the mustard gas. So one was to pile up the canisters into a pyramid and cover them in inflammable gel and then send incendiary bullets in to make it burn. And this would happen quite a few times. That would turn it to a, an ash. Um, men reported that chums often exploded and shot off into the distance and um, the, the remains of the burning was, were buried usually. Um, another way of doing it was uh, they were dumped at sea. So most of the canisters that were held in the tunnels were transported down to Piermont Wharf in Sydney and they were transferred um, onto barges and then those barges went out to a hulk that was waiting off near the continental shelf and so all the mustard gas was you know handled three or four times to get to that process and then the hulk was um, towed out past the continental shelf and sunk out there and this happened um, off Morton Island off Brisbane off Townsville off King Island in Victoria and of course off the Sydney Heads and um, while it was quite successful in getting rid of all of the mustard gas, there's lots of reports where canisters have been washed up. For example, um, there was one in, in 1983 where two men snagged a one-tonne cylinder of bulk mustard gas off the Cape off Cape Morton. In 1993, I was living in Brisbane at the time and remember this, where um, they were doing some work on the port of Brisbane and mustard gas canisters were, were brought up um, while they were doing the dredging. And so there was, you know, a whole, you know, inquiry into how this happened and, and what to do with them. But, yeah. And, and, and the presence uh, of mustard gas in Australia during the war mm. was obviously top secret. And uh, yeah. the, the, the mustard gas men who worked on that operation couldn't talk about it for many years. No. no. And I have to say, like I'm, I'm talking here like I'm an expert, but um, Jeff Plunkett's book, which is called Chemical Warfare in Australia, he did so much research and work into this in the early, well, during the 1980s and then in the early 90s. And it's his book that's given me this information here. But he interviewed um, a lot of the men who were part of the mustard gas men. And so we know their experiences and their stories. And because they weren't allowed to talk about it, A, there was a shame about their role during the war. People didn't know that they were part of the mustard gas men. And they were probably looked down upon if they did talk about it. Um, the, and the other thing is, they were exposed to dangerous conditions, but they weren't entitled to certain pensions. So they hadn't travelled overseas um, and put themselves in that kind of danger. And so they weren't entitled to special pensions. Their widows weren't entitled to that. And on top of that, they had long-term effects from, from the mustard gas and they weren't given the proper medical support they needed. In fact, there were so many stories of men going to see doctors and say, I was exposed to mustard gas during World War II. And one man was um, referred to a psychiatrist because the doctor said, well, it wasn't here in World War II. So there's this real, real sadness and shame around these men and the secret they, they held. And they held it because that was their duty. That was what they were told to do and they signed up for that. So An incredible home front story. Now, you researched and wrote the article for your website, Mid, yeah. uh, Mid Coast Stories. Tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about your website. 
Um, our website, it, it's a website and we write short stories about the region and we're trying to preserve and promote our local heritage, but we're also trying to appeal to a really wide audience. So we write quirky stories, interesting stories about the region, and we also actively um, encourage engagement from the community. So we've had over 70 people send in stories that's on our website. I've worked with primary schools for students to research and write local stories. And um, yeah, and we do a whole lot of other things. We've, we have walking tours and we, ha we had an art exhibition where we had uncovered these long lost um, paintings from Pixie Harris. So we do a lot to encourage community to get involved in their local heritage. And, and there are multiple stories and the website is www.midcoaststories.com and you've got a Facebook site. We can post those mm -hmm. links uh, onto our Facebook site as well. Janine, a fascinating story uh, on the Mustard Gas Men. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for inviting me to, to speak, David. It's, I really appreciate it. That's the podcast for today. You can find the relevant links to the podcast on our Facebook page. One of the ways to promote this podcast is through your feedback. If you're listening to us via iTunes or other podcasting apps, please leave a review. You can also support us via Patreon. Your gracious support helps us with costs such as hosting and production of the podcast. Even as little as $1 can help. The link is www.patreon.com. Thanks for your service. Thanks for listening. <laughs>